Thank you for listening to CG Life with Steve Quartz. It's my hope that today's message will help you find and live the extraordinary life Jesus gives. After listening to this podcast, I'd like to invite you to connect with me on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram for more updates and resources. Well, we're coming now to uh, the final two sermons in our series on Ask. We've looked together already at the purpose of prayer, the power and the practice of it, the problem and the priority of prayer. But today and this next Sunday, as the Lord is willing, I want us to look together as we wrap this up at the great forgotten partner of prayer, the great forgotten partner of prayer. And to help us do that, I want to ask you if you would to join me in the New Testament book of Matthew, chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 16 through 18. You'll find that on page 811 in the worship Bibles provided for you in the, uh, uh, underneath the chair in front of you, Matthew, chapter 6, verses 16 to 18. And uh, once we've seen that, then we'll do something a little bit different. We'll move on to uh, Psalms 19 and uh, have a look at a portion of Scripture there. But Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18 is where we will begin today. We find ourselves, when we come to Matthew 6, deep into Jesus' famous Sermon on the Mount, in which he's explaining the life of discipleship, the life of a follower of his. What are its privileges? What are its responsibilities? He also gives some practical guidance as to how this life is to be lived that he calls his followers to live. And as we've seen, he teaches specifically on prayer in this message, but he also teaches in addition on a subject that is odd to many of us as 21st century Americans and, quite frankly, uncomfortable for many of us. He talks about the practice of fasting. He says, and I begin in verse 16, and when you fast, speaking to his disciples, when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head. When you fast, wash your face. In other words, don't give the appearance that you're doing anything differently than what you normally would do. So that, verse uh, 18, your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And then he ends with a promise, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now notice, Jesus does three things here. He offers a word of instruction, he gives a word of warning, and then he finally gives a word of uh, direction regarding the method of fasting. He offers a word about having first the right motives in this practice by fasting to be seen God, by, by God rather than the motive of being seen by others. He offers a warning that fasting in such a way as to be seen and admired by others uh, has its own reward and is its own reward. If you fast to be seen by others, you make a big deal about it. Whatever uh, uh, attention you get from that is the reward you gain. He then gives direction and he says, keep a normal routine, keep a good demeanor while you're fasting and set your focus on seeking God's intimate attention while you fast. He makes it clear when he says twice, when you fast, when you fast, that fasting is expected, which means it's not to be rejected. 
He also makes it clear that fasting as expected is always rewarded. When you fast, when you fast, if you fast in the right way, the Father will reward you. Now, immediately when you read this passage, there are two questions that emerge. And uh, the questions are these. Why fasting? What's the point of it? And then secondly, what is fasting's reward? What is Jesus talking about when he says the Father is going to reward you when you fast? What is fasting's reward? Today I want to explore answers to both of those questions, and by answering them, I want to address the often neglected and much-needed partnership that exists between prayer and fasting. And I want to show you why, if you're a follower of Jesus, you you don't want to miss the reward that uh, this partnership brings to your life and to your relationship with Christ. There is something very deep, something very rich, something very necessary that fasting actually brings into a believer's life when it is undertaken with prayer. Now, I will grant you right from the uh, outset that when we think of fasting, we immediately, of course, think about food and, and about eating, and food is a serious subject for us. We, we need food to stay alive. Some of us need, use it and need it to feel alive, but we all need it to stay alive. And so finding it and getting it and using lots of it uh, are, for many of us, high daily priorities. Some of you have already thought, just as you've entered into the building, what am I going to have for lunch? They are high priorities for sustenance and for some of us for emotional therapy, also known as comfort. Who needs Walgreens? Who needs CVS when you've got Krispy Kreme just down the road? (laughs) Forget that prescription. Just head on over. If the light is on, go for it. You will feel better in a second. So so fasting, going without food, is for us a particularly... um, challenging subject. It's not a particularly exciting subject or a sought-after subject. It's best known today as something that we do for medical reasons, as therapy for certain chronic uh, physical conditions, or as a way to detox our bodies from poisons that are uh, collecting there. Few of us would consider practicing it unless we absolutely had to, unless the doctor said we must. And yet the Bible presents fasting as something other than an occasional medical necessity. It it presents fasting as an occasional spiritual necessity. And if you look at the Bible and, and, and you see how fasting is used in the Old Testament, you see how fasting is also used in the New, you begin to understand that fasting is used by God's people to know His will, to receive His guidance regarding the future. It is sometimes used to seek God's help, especially in times of great trouble. It's used to receive greater spiritual strength. It is used to restore the uh, triune God to his proper place at the very center of a a person's life. That fasting is often used to recenter us, to realign us with the God who has loved us and the God who has saved us. First among the, uh, the uses of fasting as presented in the Bible, is the use of fasting as a spiritual discipline to function as a treatment for a chronic spiritual condition, and that chronic spiritual condition is sin. 
We could say that fasting functions as an effective means of spiritual detoxification for followers of Jesus. According to Jesus, he says that uh, this fasting will be something that is, yes, a much-needed spiritual discipline. And he made the point to say elsewhere in the Gospels that this is something his followers would do after he had ascended to heaven. They came and they asked him one day, why don't your disciples fast like the disciples of John the Baptist fast? And he said, well, there's no need to fast while I'm here. There's, a, there's reason to celebrate while I'm here. It's once I'm gone that they're going to need to fast. My disciples will fast. But why? 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 Well, to put it as practically as I can, one of the most devastating discoveries that believers make is that though they're committed to love God, they're committed to love His Word, they're committed to cherish fellowship with Him, and they do love Him, and they do love His Word, and they do cherish fellowship with Him, that they can still sin. And sometimes they can love the sin that Christ hates. They discover the reality of this situation that the New Testament affirms, that, where it affirms that while sin's dominion or power has been broken over followers of Jesus, that is to say they don't have to sin like they once did, its presence hasn't been completely removed. Sin remains as an act of force, as an act of tendency in them, causing them to want at times to do things in the flesh that their, their minds and their spirits say, I don't really want to do. And Paul deals with that in a powerful way in Romans 7 and Romans 8. When believers sin and it goes undealt with, God the Father, who was once so close, can feel very, very distant. And when they sin and it goes undealt with, life begins to be lived without a sense of Christ's love and His forgiveness and His help. And when sin remains and, and it goes undealt with, the presence of the Holy Spirit actually shifts. And it shifts in such a way, not because the Spirit leaves, but his, his work in the life of a believer shifts. And, and he goes from comforting and helping and guiding to convicting that believer of the sin that is present. And so the, the, the Spirit of God goes from being a blessing that Christ has left to a burden they have to endure. And that's why I said, I think it was last week, yeah, that uh, some of the most miserable people on the planet are followers of Jesus. Absolutely miserable. And they're miserable not because God has failed them, but because they have failed to stay connected with the God who loves them. And that is why they are so very unhappy. Consequently, it becomes absolutely imperative that uh, believers expect sin and know how to deal with it effectively all at the same time. It, it's, it becomes critical that believers build disciplines into their lives that, that allow them to address sin as it really is. And fasting is one of those disciplines. And it helps explain why it is that Jesus teaches on it and expects it. Fasting with prayer is one of the most critical and effective ways that those who are committed to love Christ can address the problem of sin in their lives. Those who are committed to love Christ but who find that their love has shifted, that they're, they're losing their first love, their priority love. For those who, who, who are 
who are discovering that, it, that their love for Christ is slipping or those who discover that their love for Christ has actually slipped and moved from the center of their lives and shifted to the margin of their lives. Fasting is a powerful means by which God is uh, brought back to that rightful place that he deserves, both in the church's life and in the life of individual believers. It's, it's the way that the churches and individuals respond to his call in Joel 2, 12 and 13, where, where the Lord says, even now, return to me with all of your heart. He says to every, every follower of his who has slipped, every, every follower of his who is slipping, every follower of his whose love is not what it used to be, not, love is not what it should be, what it could be for him, return to me with all of your heart. How, Lord, how? He says, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. A sign in, in ancient times of great sorrow was you would take your clothes and you would tear your clothes as a sign uh, uh, of great despair and sorrow. He says, instead of tearing your clothes, what I'm really concerned about is that you rend your heart, that you take your heart and you open your heart up to me and you see with me what is there and you empty it of what should not be there. Come back to me. Come back to me. And that is precisely what fasting does. One of its primary, in fact, I think it's the primary function of fasting is to finally see and own sin. Now, we've got a great example of the kind of prayer that best accompanies fasting in Psalm 19, verses 20 to 14. And I want you to turn with me there. You'll find it on page 456, Psalm 19, verses 12, 13, and 14. Psalm 19, verses 12, 13, and 14. All right. I'm hearing some pages turn. If you're, if, you're, if you're watching via your smartphone, would you raise your smartphone? You say, I got it. When you got Psalm 19, you got it? You got it? Okay, good, good, good. It's a new horizon. <laughs> Psalm 19, 12 to 14. Now, as you make your way to Psalm 19, here's what you find in this entire psalm. You find David speaking to three facts. He's, he speaks, first of all, in Psalm 19 to the fact that the universe declares and shows the great glory of God. And then he speaks to the fact that God's word, his law, and his testimony to himself and who he is shows his glory in ways that revive the human soul. That when you see the... the God in creation, you know something of his power, but when you hear from God in his revelation, in his revealed word, you get a sense of his character, of what he's really about. And when you see his character and his self-revelation, you come to be changed. It revives, it gives life to your soul. It makes uh, wise the simple and it causes us to love him when we see him as he really is. And David demonstrates this same deep personal love for God who makes himself known in this psalm. He models that for us. But he does a third thing as well. He, points to a, he speaks to a third fact here. And that is that David has a problem. And David's problem is personal sin. And that brings us to our passage, Psalm 19, verses 12 to 14, where David prays and he says to God, Father, who, who can discern his errors? 
Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then if you will do this, I I shall be blameless because I'm not now. Then I will be innocent of great transgression. O Father, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart as I pray this be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock. You are my rock. You are my redeemer. I want you to notice what's happening here. Out of his experience of God's glory discovered in creation and his encounter with God's character and his will revealed in his word, David discovered something about himself. Let me give you, if you're taking notes, write this down. The more you see and understand of God, the more you will see and understand of yourself. The more that you see and understand God the more you will see and understand of yourself. One of the reasons why so many of us don't pursue a deeper knowledge of God is because we don't want to see what that deeper knowledge actually will show us about ourselves. The farther we can keep God at a distance, the, the farther his, his, his qualities and, and uh, his, his natural conditions and his character are from our view, the more muted they are, the more obscured they are, the better we feel about ourselves. But when you come closer and closer to see God as he really is, the more you begin to realize who you really are. That is both a source of joy and a source of pain, but it is a reality. David's encounter with God in creation and in his word has given him a love for God, and his love for God has uncovered his capacity for sin against God. And so seeing God's great worthiness and his own personal unworthiness, David goes from praising God to pleading with him for help with his sin. And because fasting for repentance also aims at loving God and dealing intentionally with sin, David's response becomes a valuable guide for us to fasting with prayer. Specifically, David shows us that loving God and dealing with sin means taking four steps. And I want to encourage you to write these down. Those steps are these. Owning the sin problem we have, seeking the help we all need, receiving the gifts only God gives, and finally celebrating the champion that God is. Owning the sin problem we have, seeking the help we all need, receiving the gifts only God gives, and finally celebrating the champion that God is. We're going to deal with that first point today, and we'll finish with the uh, final three next week. So first I want you to see with me that David shows us that loving God and dealing with our sin means owning the sin problem that we have, owning the sin problem that we have verses 12 to 13b. Here we find David owning his personal sins, and it's important for us to point out right from the very beginning that for David and the rest of the Bible, sin always is an urgent problem for God's people. It is always an urgent problem for God's people. Sin is always an urgent problem for God's people. Sin is always an urgent problem for God's people. Always. Why? Because it has four specific characteristics that make it 
Incredibly dangerous. Here they go. Are you ready? First of all, sin starts smaller than we think. Sin always starts smaller than we think. Great sins always begin as small sins. That's why the warning comes in Genesis to Cain. Beware. Sin is crouching at your door. Sin always starts small. It never starts big. It always starts small. I cannot tell you how many in my 35 plus 36 years of ministry, how many times I have seen marriages broken and families disbanded because somebody didn't understand that one little small flirtation could lead to such devastation. They just didn't understand that sin always starts small. Sin always starts small. Sin always, secondly, costs more than we think it does. It always comes with a price, regardless of its size. It always comes with a price to us and a price to others in the destruction that it brings. One of the great mysteries to me in, in, um, in my own personal life and in my own personal walk with Christ And in dealing with others who are followers of Jesus, one of the great mysteries to me is how it is that we've missed this reality. We are followers of Jesus. We acknowledge that he he, uh, paid the price of our sin on the cross. There's not a follower of Jesus who doesn't know that and understand that in this room. But what I think we miss, and this is uh, much to our damage, and, uh, uh, and, and, and it hurts us extraordinarily, what we often miss is not only the cost that sin always requires of us, the price we have to pay when we sin in the present, but somehow I think we've forgotten the price that God had to pay in order to deal with that sin when Christ came. It costs us something. It cost us. It cost him his son. And I don't understand why we miss that. Do we become so comfortable with the cross and the story of the cross that we take it for granted, that we simply acknowledge it as a fact, when, when in reality we need to acknowledge that every sin we commit, small or large, costs Jesus his life. There's no, there's, there's no such thing as a cheap sin. Unless you've got a cheap Jesus. If you've got a cheap Jesus, you've got a cheap cross, you've got cheap sins. Sin, thirdly, reaches farther than we think. It not only starts smaller and costs more, but it reaches farther than we think. Small sins can have a big impact on our lives, our human relationships, and our relationship with God. Uh, What we don't recognize, thirdly, is that sin in one area of life always grows quickly and easily spreads into other areas of life. The best metaphor for sin, spiritually, is is physical cancer. You get cancer in one part of your body. If you don't treat it, it's going to travel. It's going to travel. Some of you in this room I know are cancer survivors. 
you probably understand better than, than the rest of us how serious just a little bit of cancer is and what just a little bit of cancer can do. But sin always travels. If it's impacting me in one area of my life, it's going to impact me in other areas of life. See, we like to think that I can corral this sin. I can, I can manage this sin. I, 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 I can do that. It's, not, it's small. I can take care of it. I can keep it in this one area of my life. I can, I can hold bitterness in my heart toward that person in my past, but I can keep it all contained. I can keep it contained right here in my past, in my past relationships, and it'll never touch any of my other relationships. Never in a million years will you be able to do it. The longer you've held that bitterness the surer everybody else is in your life that you're a bitter person because it keeps spilling out and spilling over into your relationship with them too. You say, but I'm not mad at them. Oh, well, no, maybe not. But sin travels and it's traveled and it's impacting. You may have bitterness against your mother, bitterness against your father, bitterness against another person who hurt you, harmed you some way 30 years ago, and that bitterness is actually devastating your marriage right now and you can't see it because you think you've got it corralled. Finally, sin deserves more than we think. For most of us, our sins seem small and the sins of others seem large. Have you noticed that? How big everybody else's sin is and how small ours is? How many of you have noticed that? Oh, okay, good, good. Have, how many of you have noticed how much you enjoy managing, minding, paying good attention to everybody else's sins? How many of you have said, I, I enjoy that? Oh, come on, you're sinning right now. <laughs> and I'm enjoying it. I'm just so, I'm so enjoying it. I, I'm so, <laughs> yeah, I'm just so enjoying this. All right, one more time. Take the joy out of it for me. How many of you enjoy minding other people's sins? That's, this is, you do. You love it. You absolutely love it. You say, you don't know me. Oh, yeah, I do. You love it, especially when it's one of yours. Because anybody else's sin that seems bigger than yours makes your seem better. Their bigger sins make your sin seem better. It's a law of life. Write that down so you can share it with a person you're concerned about, right? <laughs> I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you. Here's what we need to remember for a holy creator who is just. All wrongs committed against him and his law deserve a penalty. And the penalty is not just separation from him, but death. And while all sin is not equal in terms of its immediate consequences, it's not. All sin is equal in its ultimate cost. And all sin is therefore serious. The presence of sin in our lives 
deserves our serious attention. And what is more, sin in the life of a person who has been saved from the penalty of death in Christ, it still brings at least two negative consequences. For a believer, sin present in your life includes a separation from God in the form of broken fellowship with Him so that His presence and His power and His love for us are less and less experienced. And God seems farther and farther away. It also results in a loss of purpose in life, the kind that comes from usefulness to God. When when sin is present in our lives, God cannot use us. And that's why Paul says to Timothy, now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for honorable use and some for dishonorable use. If anyone will, will cleanse themselves from that which is dishonorable, he or she will become a vessel for uh, honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. The, the, the followers of Jesus who are useful and ready are those who are set apart because they have dealt with and continue to deal with sin in their lives. If sin is in your life and you don't deal with it, you are effectively useless to God because God will not put his holy hand on a vessel that is not clean. And you may be praying, Lord, use me, use me, give me purpose in life, give me meaning in life, use me, use me to make a difference. And God will say, yes, I want to, I want to, I want to. But before that can happen, I've got to clean you up. And that means you've got some steps you've got to take. All sin is serious because all sin is dangerous. In our passage, David shows us that his sin problem actually comes and takes two forms and uh, shows us how our sin comes as well. He shows that first we have the capacity for sins we can't see, sins that baffle and surprise us. And when we finally do see these kinds of sins in ourselves, we often wonder, how how did I get caught in that? And so he says, verse 12, who can discern his errors, all of his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. I, I I can discern some of them, but I can't always discern all of them because, well, quite frankly, there's so much that is ingrained in me that is in that is a part of me that God still needs to work out. There's so much that is normal in this world that I just accept as normal that is contrary to the character and and the will of God that it can be pretty easy for us to slip into sin and not even know we're there. There are times when when a person acts in a wrong way but doesn't realize of what they're doing. One of the great benefits, by the way, of the church of Jesus Christ is that somebody loves us enough to say, hey, what's going on in your life? And not with glee. No, not, not, not that deal. Not that deal. Ha, <laughs> I caught you. You lousy sinner. You need to fast and pray. Remember what pastor said. No, I don't mean that, but I mean somebody who loves you enough to come alongside you and say, what? What's going on with you? Where'd that come from? See, that's a gift that we give, and, and, and it may be that there's a sin in their lives that they're not even aware of it. There's something that's, that's starting to grow and take, take root in their lives, and they're not even aware of it, and they need for us just to come with love. As the New Testament teaches, recognizing that we could be in the very same place if we're not careful, it keeps us humble, 
and say, brother, sister, hey, what, what is this? These hidden faults aren't to be taken as, as faults with that the psalmist then purposely covers up, but they're rather these are sins that are committed, that are unknown to him, or don't feel like sin to him in the moment. They're either sins that we don't see or, or sin that we don't see as sin. And so there are things that we often do, especially out of pride. I find that pride blinds us the most, that hurt others and dishonor Christ and simply don't register with us, at least for a while. Sometimes we do wrong and, and don't know it because we don't know Scripture and what God has said is right and wrong. So David says, none of us can see all of our errors clearly, so deliver me, Lord, from my unwitting, hidden failures. Why? Well, because, God, I know that all sin is serious for life and all sin is serious to life. And I'm taking this so seriously that I'm asking you to help me deal with the sins I don't even see. Second, David says, we have the capacity for sins that we do, even though we know they are sins, some sins that just genuinely delight us. He says in verse 13, keep back your servant or restrain me or don't allow me to fall into patterns of presumptuous sins. Presumptuous sins are sins that show that we think we know better than God, their potential, their cost, their reach, or their deserts. We, we commit them knowingly and deliberately, though they are a violation of God's express will. These are the sins we, we commit and say, oh, it's a small thing, not a big deal. Oh, they deserve it, not a big deal. It, it, it's something, I've done it before, I didn't see any consequences, not a big deal. So David demonstrates the importance here of owning the possibility of having sins we cannot see, as well as owning the reality of the sins we can see as a first step to spiritual restoration and health. Why? Well, because all sin is serious for life and all sin is dangerous to life. You got to own them. 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 And this, perhaps more than any other, is the barrier that keeps us from really walking faithfully and fully with Christ. It, it, it's owning it. It's naming it. It's, it's declaring it. it it's, this is what keeps us from moving forward in our relationship. We want to do the yeah, but thing. Yeah, but. You know, look what they did to me. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. Yeah, but. And we, we don't make any progress. If you're taking notes, write this down. Here is a, a, an absolute law of life. If you play with sin, you toy with sin, sin will play and toy with you. You may think it's small. You may think you can corral it. You may think you can manage it. You may think you can fix it. You may think that you can... Find it whenever it's present. You can't always find it even when it's present. But it is dangerous for life, and it's because it's dangerous to life. What sin are you playing with right now?
What sin are you toying with right now? Where's your sin? You say, Pastor, why do you pause when you ask that question? Because I want to let the Holy Spirit do the work that only He can do. I I can't convict you of sin. I I can't, but He can, and and I know that actually right in this moment, right now, He is. For many, many people in this room. Where's your sin? You say, I don't like this. Okay. God doesn't like it either. Do something about it. You say, I don't like this. Yeah, I know. I know. You want a church that passes out donuts, not takes them away. You're in the wrong church. been trying to get your attention for the last week, the last month, the last year, the last 10 years of your life, and you've been saying, oh, no, 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 it's small, it's not a big deal, I'm justified, yeah, but, yeah, but, yeah, but, I'm good, I'm good, I got this under control, I... I'm not bitter. I'm not jealous. I'm not enslaved to porn. I can stop anytime. Uh oh, now he's getting serious. Now it's super uncomfortable. Would you please pass out the donuts? I don't hate her, I just can't stand to look at her. I don't have a bad attitude. I've got a good attitude. Everybody who knows me knows it. Yeah. 
where's your sin? What does God say? He says, yet even now, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning. Rend your hearts and not your garments, yet even now. Yet even now. I'm not as far away as you think I am. I, your life does have a purpose. I, I have more for you. And what you're in and where you're in. But you are never, no, never, no, never, no, never going to ever begin to experience a relationship with me, the fullness of my presence, the power of my life flowing through yours as long as you keep. This sin in your life. You can't beat it. You can't defeat it. I'm the only one who can do those things. But the only way we're going to get started at bringing you back to a place where you need to be and where I'm at the very center of your life is if you own it. You've got to own it. I am bitter. I'm angry, I'm jealous, I'm mean, I'm harsh, I'm prideful, One of the most powerful things the Lord has taught me to do is on a regular basis to find a blank sheet of paper, a pen, and to set aside about two hours to get away and to get alone by myself with the Lord. Lay that sheet of paper out. Lay that pen out. Open up his word. Go to a psalm like Psalm 19. Psalm 51. Let others know I don't need to be bothered. I don't need to be interrupted. 
and spread that sheet out before the Lord with that pen, His Word. Read through His Word, and with His Word still open, take that pen and say to the God of the universe, four words, show me my sin. And then everything the Spirit of God shows me, I write down. Specifically, I name it. One of the hardest things I've ever done in life is to write my sin down in such a way that I see it as it really is. I want to use code. But code doesn't work. It's got to be plain, clear. And I've learned that after I have written and written and written and written and written, first I'm very surprised by the length of my list. But I've also discovered that once that list is done, I've just gotten started. That underneath that list of the obvious things, there are the deeper things. Then underneath my pride, my envy, my jealousy, lurk things like lust, and underneath that, The desire to be better than, more than, and underneath that a desire to replace the God of the universe with myself, which is ultimately where every one of us lands. But I've got to trace the trail. Once that list is built, I then take the time to go through and confess each one and with each one to say, and Lord, what would you have me do? And Lord, what would you have me do? What would you have me do? What needs to change? What needs to go? What would you have me do? And when I'm finally done with that, The actions that I need to take, I take. The forgiveness that I need to receive, I receive. And suddenly what was a very painful experience begins to be a reviving experience. That Yes, he died for these things, but now that I have made not... Now that I have not made light of these things for which he died, now they become sources of joy. I am forgiven. It's cast as far as the east is from the west. When I've gone through that process, I take that sheet of paper 
and I tear that sheet of paper up and I dump that thing and I walk away. and find that my master has made his way back to the center of my life, my longing, and my love. And then I am ready for the life he has for me. So here's what I want you to know. You ready? A week from today as Jesus tarries. If he comes again between now and Sunday, I'll see you there. Somebody say amen. Amen. <laughs> amen. I will see you there. Can't wait for you to see me perfect. I cannot wait for you to see me perfect. I can't wait to see me perfect. And I'm kind of interested in seeing you perfect because I've been minding all your sins for this whole time. (laughs) Next Sunday, I'm calling our church to a season of prayer with fasting. Next Sunday, I'm going to be challenging you to, uh, with God's help, to determine how you will fast and how long you will fast. And I'm asking you, to enter into a time of prayer with fasting. First, to be sure that sin is dealt with in our body and as it is dealt with in us individually, and then to create in us a spirit of openness to all that he has for us. I know you've got concerns. Some of you have got concerns about the future. The best way to know God's future and his desire for you is to get clean and get cleaned up before him and get in a place where you can hear him speak. For you, that's what I want for you. For some of you, you need confirmation about the direction that you're going, and God has that for you, but again, you've got to be able to hear him when he speaks. So I'm going to be calling our church to that. This is not anything new for Center Grove. If you're new to Center Grove, this will be new to you probably, but it is not new for for us. And let me tell you what we discovered when we do this. Lives are changed, families get healed, and God moves with power. We experience his presence in a deeper way when this church has gone through the pattern and the process of prayer with fasting, of getting cleaned up and getting prepared for all that God has for us. I'm fully aware that there will be some people who will not come back to Center Grove because of this message. They're looking for donuts. Okay. Uh, Okay. That's okay, you know. But I just need for you to know my heart for you. I don't want you to miss the reward that God has for you. And the reward that God has for you is a fresh experience of his presence and a fresh experience of his power and the fresh entry into a life that is worth the living even when it hurts. That's my heart for you. So, you're forewarned. The best way you can be forearmed is to take some time this week. Find your piece of paper. Find your two hours. Get your pen out 
and say to God, show me my sin. Let's stand together all across the room. Father, our prayer is that everything and nothing less would be what we offer to you. Everything, our sins, our fears, our failures, that we would live standing with open hands offering to you all of our lives, that we would give to you our best, our all, that we would give to you our worst, recognizing afresh that you deserve every part of us, every breath we breathe, recognizing, Father God, that you were meant to be, through Christ, the very center of our lives, and that sin indicates that something else has come to have greater value to us than you, and sin that is remaining has come to take your place at the center, and we acknowledge today that that cannot be, must not be, should not be, that you deserve our best. That rather than spreading damage and destruction in our lives and in our relationships, rather than wasting our days and months and years in the pursuit of things that are not really on our genuine horizon that you've called us to, a radical way of living, brings life into relationships, that speaks life into the lives of others, that makes others stronger and better and richer, not poorer, because we're walking day to day in tune and in touch with you, with your Son, with your Spirit. Father God, I'm praying, I'm asking that you would move in a fresh way in this church. That once again, you would move in such a way to restore to us the joy of our salvation. That our faith would be living, vital, vibrant, and used of you to make an eternity's worth of difference in a world that is broken and bound for a destiny separated from you for eternity. Grant, Lord God, that you would move again for Jesus' sake. Amen. Thanks for joining me today. If you enjoy these podcasts, take a moment to rate and review CG Life with Steve Kortz. My prayer is that God will continue to inspire and challenge you in Christ as week by week we apply the gospel faith to real life.